Welcome to the For the Church podcast, another great gospel-centered resource from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson. I'm an assistant professor of pastoral ministry and author in residence at Midwestern Seminary. Where do you begin when you've begun with Christ? If you're a new Christian, you're on a new path. But where are you going and how do you get there? As an adult convert, Aaron Armstrong had to face these questions himself. In his new book, I'm a Christian, Now What? A Guide to Your New Life with Christ, Aaron helps you take those important first steps. This practical and friendly book helps make sense of your new life with Jesus. Aaron Armstrong is a Canadian living in the United States. He serves at his local church as a small group leader, a children's ministry teacher, and an occasional Sunday morning teacher. He works at a Christian publishing company. He loves to write, especially to help people grow as followers of Jesus. Author of multiple books, the writer of several documentaries. That's right. Know about this, man. What, what documentaries have you written? The two that have made it to production are Through the Eyes of Spurgeon, and okay. uh, which has had a lot of play over at Midwestern, yeah. and Luther, The Life and Legacy of the German Reformer. Whoa, man, I did not know that. That's pretty cool, Aaron. Thank you. Aaron Armstrong is our guest. Welcome to the podcast, brother. <laughs> <laughs> As I'm reading the bio, I'm like, wait, what? Documentaries? Yeah. Surprise. I'm always full of surprises. Or something like that. I didn't, you know. <laughs> Who knows? Um, I'm eager to talk about this book, especially because I think it's a very needed resource. It's a unique resource, which is strange to say in the Christian in the Christian world that this would be a unique thing. But before we get there, I got to ask you, because it's very rare that I have a comic book geek of your stature on the program. And there's a lot going on with the MCU and the DCU. We have- Any major thoughts, first of all, about let's talk about Marvel just for a, a minute. Well, what's your take on what's going on with the MCU currently? Because I feel like it's a mess. I don't know if you I- think so. Yeah, I have not been this bored watching <laughs> a series of movies since. Um, since DC kind of gave up a okay, while ago, right. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but I mean, you know, Phase Four has been a little bit rough, and and I kind of understand. I kind of understand why they're they're trying to trying to figure out where they're going direction wise. There's part of me that you know, as a the fan, as a semi creative person, I I kind of wish that they had pulled a Seinfeld and ended it all after Endgame. Yeah. And had left us all wanting more. That didn't happen. And that's okay. We've still gotten a couple of good movies out of their phase four, but really only two of them have any rewatchability, which is sad. But DC, I'm very intrigued. I'm <laughs> well, let's so not, let, interested. Let's not go there yet. Okay. Even the phraseology, man, I, I feel like Marvel's getting too confusing. I think creatively, and I know they're drawing from the comic books and, yeah. and those sorts of things. And and I was a big reader of comic books when I was a kid, but there's deep cuts that are driving this ship that I'm I'm not that you know well versed in. So when they say things like phase four begins with Thor part three and I'm like, wait, are they already? That's confusing. Creatively that I think they were thinking we opened this door to the multiverse and the possibilities are endless, which on one level sounds great. On another level, the possibilities are endless and it's, there's just so much going on and that you're kind of like, I wish we could kind of come back to the 
hey, maybe there's an alien who wants to blow up the world or something. And you know. <laughs> yeah, oh, totally, totally. And Instead of I mean, timeline I, jumping and all these sorts of things, you know. Yeah, and I think that they're they're kind of working their way toward that now. Um, but there was so much set up with like, okay, who are the characters that are going to stick? You know, hopefully, uh, hopefully Shang Chi gets another round because that was one of the few watchable movies of phase four and you know i gotta support my fellow canadians so okay well here's so here's the upside the dcu has been hot garbage for a while yep i I don't know what your take so my take on that is the success of the batman films which are clearly the best dc movies has made all the other movies are the, all the other products like we need a Batman eyes, everything or dark Knight eyes, everything. So Superman becomes brooding and wonder woman becomes brooding and justice league becomes brooding and it's dark. They can't afford to turn the lights on in their movies. And I mean, everything is sort of like it's a noir and everyone's somber and it just doesn't work. And they haven't had as good a writing or a consistent sort of, you know, I think Marvel yeah. is it Kevin Feige. Who's kind of, at least in the beginning, he kind yeah. of casts a vision. So there's a unified, you didn't have that with DC. It's kind of scattershot and the creative thing is all over the place. Well, now they're like closing that door. There's some things I think I'm going to miss. Supposedly Cavill's not coming back. So I, I, I liked the I liked the actors mm-hmm. and somewhat, you know, I, I even like Ben Affleck as Batman, but it seems like the door is closing there as Marvel has sort of lost its footing. DC hires James Gunn, who most known to comic book movie people as the guardians of the galaxy mastermind for Marvel, but he's done some DC stuff already. Right. Didn't he do suicide yeah. squad thing? So he's, yeah. he's coming over to be the Kevin Feige of the new rebooted DCU. And so I wonder if we're about to see an inverse as Marvel is sort of losing its way. DC is now going to have a new opportunity. However, and I'll, I'll let you speak to this. DC has botched this. They have muffed this punt. <laughs> every single shot they've had they have screwed this up so my hopes are up but i almost feel like charlie brown running at the football it's gonna get yanked away from me at the last second thoughts Aaron yeah. Armstrong, comic okay geek. okay for broader context what we've seen over the last couple of decades in the movie world with Everyone's super excited about Marvel and everyone dunking on DC and DC trying to play catch up. That's been what's basically been happening since the 1970s and in publishing. And so for years, DC was like, oh, we've got to try and Marvelize our characters or we've got to try to do something that's going to catch up and make people pay attention again. And then they started doing things like just telling good stories and people cared, (laughs) Um, which was great. (laughs) I know, shocking, right? Like if you tell a good story, people will pay attention. But that's what happened. And so you got the kind of, you got the the creator's resurgence that happened in the 80s and 90s with, you know, Neil Gaiman and Alan Moore with Swamp Thing and Sandman and books like this that were all for like super adult stuff. But you even got some cool stuff happening with superhero characters 
as well. Although you also got the death of Superman, which ends the super mullet. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, but, uh, so I kind of see a parallel of that happening in the movies right now, that there's this potential for some, some excitement here, but I definitely resonate with the fear that exists with a lot of fans that it's like, okay, I don't know if I can love again. I'm afraid to get hurt. And, <laughs> right, right. And I get that. But I think one of the things that I've appreciated so far in, in this transition has been how James Gunn has been actively talking to fans the whole time and been like, okay, so here's where we're at right now. Here's, you know, someone's talking about this on the interwebs. This is a whole bunch of garbage and don't believe it. <laughs> and I'm just like, I love when he does stuff like that. It just makes me happy. Um, but I'm also like, okay, I don't know what's going to happen because he's busy cleaning up a mess of like yeah, of yeah. movies with problematic actors and doing tons of course correction and reshoots and yeah, it, yeah. It, it's going to be a little bit messier before it gets better but well they scrapped they, the whole movie did i mean and this is before he came over but there was the batgirl movie was totally done and then they just said delete we're not even yep. going to release that that's never seen the light of day as a cost-saving measure all these people including the performers they filmed the movie they made the movie Yep. And it's a movie that probably in 20 years, someone's going to unearth. It'll suddenly become a rare out of the vault kind of thing. Right. But that's I right. A bootleg copy is going to is going to show up copy. somewhere and yeah. someone is going to be insisting that it is even better than CBS's failed Justice League pilot from the <laughs> 1990s. OK, well, now what? Let's talk about your book. Now what? It's <laughs> a good transition. The, uh, in the in the notes of the um, what do you call them? Liner notes, production notes, the sh show notes. Show notes. In the show notes, I'll say if you want to skip the comic book talk, jump to minute ten, second forty five. Your book is called "Now What: A Guide to Your New Life <laughs> with Christ." Tell us about the the genesis of this book. Like I said in the intro. This is so strange to me that this is a unique thing. I know that, I mean, it's not the first of its kind, yeah. but there's not a whole lot of books out there that are like, I'm a brand new Christian. What do I do? There are books we give to brand new Christians, but they're not typically books that are specifically designed for a brand new Christian. Where did the idea come from? How did the, you know, how did it start? Yeah, well... The the idea started back in uh, back in the before times in uh, in two senses. So one before a uh, politically charged event in 2020 and also before I moved to the United States uh, back when I lived in a far off land called Canada. And I had been a Christian for about 10 years at this point. And because that anniversary time was coming up, I was starting to get a little bit reflective and or a bit naval gazy and thinking about, okay, where have I come from in the last 10 years? How have I progressed and grown and changed? And what also do I wish someone had, where do I think I had really missed on something in those early years? What do I wish someone had been able to tell me? And I was thinking about this while at the same time, 
I got an email from you actually, because there was a, there was this new website that was being started by Midwestern called for the church. And you asked if I could, if I could write a little something for it. And so these two things came together at just the perfect time. And so I started thinking through this in earnest and actually wrote some of the very early versions of this as a series called letters to a new believer that show up on ftc.co. And so that's what kind of prompted me to get started. But for me, it was questions like my wife, Emily, and I, we didn't have a good, clear understanding of what exactly the Bible is. And because I hadn't grown up in the church at all, I didn't like prayer was a weird thing. And I didn't really know what I was supposed to do there and how it was supposed to make sense. And especially when the church that I started attending was very much more on the charismatic side than where I kind of land theologically these days. And so there's just a, there's a whole different experience there. That's all I'm going to (laughs) say. Not bad, just different. And then, you know, figuring out what is actually a value in the church and what what makes a church a church what are the things we should be looking for coupled with big big mistakes like getting into leadership way too early like within about two years of becoming a christian i was leading community groups and i was also leading the men's ministry at my church that's (laughs) that's not a good idea when you're also (laughs) about 27 or 28. And have been married for about a minute. So uh, that doesn't help. So there were things like that. And then figuring out like, okay, how does my faith affect my relationship to things like music and pop culture and books and movies and creativity and basically all the things that I really, really care about, like to the point that I had to ask the question, okay, do I actually have to stop liking good music? Or can I, can I like things that are good and love Jesus at the same time? And because it felt like I had to say, okay, well, if I like the Foo Fighters, I have to go get a, uh, get a CD from a band that sounds kind of like them, but, but talks a little <laughs> bit about Jesus. And, yeah. and that just wasn't all that appealing to me. And so navigating all those things and how to have disagreements with other believers, basically all the places where I stepped in something more than once. And as I was writing this series, it was clear that there was something more there. And so it, it just kind of, it progressed from there into ultimately the book that is now available for everybody. Yeah. Your comment about, you know, liking the Foo Fighters and trying a Christian version, those posters, this might've been after your believer, I don't know, but were you around when there were those posters in the Christian bookstore that would say, if you like, or sometimes it would be in a magazine, you know, CC yeah. magazine, if you like such and such, you'll like, or you'll love whatever. Yes. And I always found that there was such a disconnect. It was always like, if you like public enemy, you'll love DC talk. <laughs> it's like, really? And if you like, I'm like, okay, I, I guess I understand how you're getting there, but no, they're like, they're not even the same style. You know what I mean? It's it, yeah. It's like, yeah. Yeah. They, they these two if, things. If you, are if not you like the Slayer, same. you'll love Petra. Well, I don't think so. It's not, <laughs> no, this, no. it's not just non-Christian to Christian. It's like, it's an apple and orange brother. Yeah. What do you think is missing in the church's approach to helping new believers, guiding new believers, 
this is a strange phenomenon. And I wonder if it's actually a subtle symptom of the fact that we are not as evangelistically fervent. This is my perception. And I think the stats bear this out. Um, Western evangelicalism and certainly yeah. American evangelicalism, we are not as evangelistically zealous as we were 50 years ago. And so we think less about new believers because there's not as many. Yeah. And a lot of the growth in American churches these days comes through transfer growth. You know, thankfully the Lord is, the, the gospel is still powerful and people are still getting saved and there's still baptisms, but we're seeing a decline in, in a lot of those things. So I wonder sometimes if we just don't think about it. As I think about your book being unique, I'm thinking it's not even in, in our headspace to devote a whole lot of attention collectively, culturally, yeah. maybe on the church by church basis, it's different. But when we do think about it, because your book also has a unique approach, not just a unique product, it's unique in the way that you approach it. What's often missing in the way churches think about new believers? I think you have a unique perspective just because you are adult convert, but also now as an established ministry leader, and churchmen yourself, what do we sometimes get wrong or just maybe degrees off in thinking about new believers? Yeah, well, that is a really great question. And I think one of the places where we need to start is we need to recognize who we're talking to. And that that sounds very vague, but but we need to remember that we're in this in this place where there's this trajectory in society that's been going on for 30 plus 40 years kind of thing that the boogeyman that we've been talking about in church circles has been, you know, the post-Christian culture. Yeah. Um, well, there's just one problem with that, which is a post-Christian culture, which does exist and is true. And like, we need to be aware of that. That's also a moving target because the the idea of a post-Christian culture assumes a kind of a sense of familiarity with some basic ideas of Christianity. But as time progresses, cultures inevitably or societies inevitably move past that to something, you know, the way I describe it in the book is a post-post-Christian culture, which is almost a pre-Christian one. And the reason that I say it that way is, is because in a Western society, you can never entirely remove the influence of Christianity. It's baked into so much of what exists in the world, you know, whether we're talking about the basics of civil law or we're talking about um, the concept of consent among adults and uh, in particular relationships that's an idea that that comes from christian ethics as opposed to the outer world in uh, in its early days and so we're in in some places but moving toward in others this place where people don't have any significant familiarity with with christianity they don't have a hostility necessarily toward mm. it. And that is a significant thing because so much of what, of the way that we tend to engage when we think about post-Christianity is more of in a combative stance. 
that, okay, we've got to fight against this idea of postmodernism or hyper individualism or, or whatever other language you might want to use, but we're not necessarily doing a great job of meeting the person who is entirely ignorant in the truest sense of that word of what Christians believe, what Christianity even is, what a cross is and that it's not, we're not just walking around with letter T's around our necks or on our buildings (laughs) um, or any of these kinds of things. We need to do a better job of making the truths that we believe clear and understandable for people who have no idea what we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so much of the lingo, the inside jargon, inside baseball things in my current context. So we're in a seminary bubble. Obviously, our church is situated inside kind of the radius of Midwestern seminary. We have, you know, good number of seminary connected folks at our church, which is a blessing. I wouldn't trade it for the lack of resources that I had in my previous context. <laughs> totally. It was, it was like pulling teeth to get someone to preach for me if I was, you know, if I wanted a Sunday off. Now you throw a Rocky hit a preacher, you know, or somebody who wants to be a preacher. So I wouldn't trade that. There's such a wealth of resources and, and just ministry minded people and all that sort of thing. At the same time, you get people who they're used to eat, sleeping and breathing seminary world or just theology world. And I think that can be true, not just in a seminary bubble, but just in our church culture. We get used to our church lingo and our church fee, you know, folks, and we have to kind of coach each other to remember, to explain that. I remember sitting in a, a Bible study discussion in my last context, and somebody in the circle used the phrase, we just need to be good Bereans. And, and we were literally sitting in a big circle I was kind of leading a discussion and someone in their response used that phrase, we need to be good Bereans. And probably two thirds of the circle kind of nodded their heads or kind of went, "Mm mm-hmm, or something like that. Mm -hmm. But I'm noticing, because it's the pastor's job to notice things, I'm noticing the two or three newer believers or previously unchurched folks, and there's just a little confusion. And none of them are going to raise their hand and go, I don't know what that means because it's embarrassing or they don't want to look stupid or whatever. And so I just say to the guy who'd answered the question, hey, could you explain what a Berean is? And he was like, oh, yeah. I mean, it, it didn't even occur to him really in the moment because that's just the language that you're using. He's not trying to sound confusing or. No, he's just. Yeah, he's not using it. He's not trying to use insider language to exclude anybody. It's just that's the language. Totally. And, and we yeah. do it all the time. Like, you know, if, think of how many times we've heard or even preached a sermon where we've used a word like sanctification. Right. But never bothered to say what that word actually means. I know we all want to be careful about our word counts and our run times <laughs> because, you know, we got lunch coming, but, uh, <laughs> but it, it doesn't take that many more words to say, okay, when we're talking about sanctification, we're talking about the, prog- our progressive growth as a Christian to, to be more holy, to be more like Jesus. Yeah. Um, that's not difficult. Yeah. You know, what's great too about consciousness of new believers in the, in the church is how refreshing it is to come alongside a new believer. There's such seal, there's such energy it, in a way you begin to see the old, the faith that is in a, in a way old, or, or at least that you're accustomed to 
in new ways. You know, there was a fellow who'd come to my last church, got saved in his early 60s. He, so he came in a brand new believer or on the cusp. And he was 62, I think, you know, grew up Roman Catholic, left the Catholic church when he was 18, disappeared from church experience for 40, you know, whatever years. Mm-hmm. shows up in, at my church all of a sudden, no evangelical church experience, no church experience period for 40 some years. His brother had kind of led him to the Lord or at least led him down that path. I, I had the privilege of baptizing him. You know, he made a profession of faith at our church. So I baptized him. And he, the questions he's asking are totally different. He's reading the Bible nonstop. He has a zeal to be at every event. He, you know, yeah, and it just it breathes new life into the church, doesn't it? The the it, having new believers around, it's great. It really does, and I mean, it is. I'm still young enough in my faith that I can remember what it was like to be that excited to read the Bible and like no idea what I was doing and what I was on. And I had no, I didn't have any real understanding of a whole bunch of it, um, which probably made, you know, starting with like jumping into a book like revelation when I did probably a big problem, but, (laughs) um, but don't worry, I didn't go any down any uh, left behind rabbit trails. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Okay. But uh, again, listeners, if you're, if, if that's your jam, cool. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Enough said there. Yeah. Um, You you have a a natural progression to the book. You have a particular order you have in mind uh, just as when you kind of began that series at for the church the you know letters to a new christian um you have a progression here talk us through the progression what what were you thinking in terms of what needs to come first what needs to come second in terms of the new believer yeah so when it comes to the new when it comes to a new believer i mean first and foremost a new believer um and especially of any age but especially as an adult they need to understand who they are their fundamental identity um so um so the way i describe it in the book is that um is that when you become a believer as you are the same you you were before but you're also a new person And so that means that you you're going to look the same, you're going to dress the same, you're mostly going to talk the same, but you also have a new uh, a new identity as a child of as a child of God, as someone loved by him and part of his family, that you have a new purpose to honor and please him to obey him. Um, You have new desires and you have a new hope as well and so those are significant things because those are the foundation of who what it of who we are as as god's people as christians um as people saved by jesus but when we are new in our faith we're also basically the equivalent of a newborn mm. on that on that day so we might be 25 35 65 um, in our physical and mental age, but spiritually, we are brand new minutes, days, weeks old. And so the years that so those early weeks and months and years, um, much like they are with a physical child, 
are key to how we grow in our faith. They set the trajectory for us. And so we need to develop good, healthy, wise practices that ground us in our faith. So we need to understand how to read the Bible well and to know how to pray and develop our relationship with God through those two means, as well as through the third, which is relationship with Christian community. So the church, those three basic core pillars of the Christian life. Once we have those, that's when we can start doing more of the ethical, theological triage that needs to happen with how we interact with the world. That was the intentional progress that I made in the book to to help people understand that. And that's when it goes through a little bit of everything like interacting with creativity, making Jesus the Lord of our bedroom, um, which, you know, is you know, that I could have probably done like three or four different chapters on that one. Um, but it would have been a really long book at that point. Um, the, you know, how do we learn how to disagree with one another? How do we, how do we take seriously the Bible's call to character as the number one deciding factor on leadership above skill, above anything else? Not that skill is not important, not that other criteria that scripture gives us don't matter, but to pursue and develop the above reproachness that the Bible calls us to, to have a good reputation with people in and outside the church, to be respected and ethical and kind and bold in our conviction at the same time really wanting to leave people with this picture of um, that that's, that is ultimately the goal that we want. And so that's where, where the final chapter takes us. Very, very cool. You know, Midwestern Seminary, of course, uh, I was about to say notoriously, famously exists for the church. Maybe we notoriously (laughs) are for the church. The podcast is for the church. What do you say to the new believer in the book about the church? What I talk about the church there is I gave seven different signs of what a healthy church is. And um, so not nine marks. No, not nine marks. I think that's copyrighted. So I can't (laughs) I can't do that. Um, That would be wrong (laughs) unless I gave a proper uh, shout out to to Mark Dever company. But I didn't do that. But um, some of the things that I talked about there were that, you know, a healthy church is one where Jesus is the focus from the messages that we preach, from the songs we sing, from the the culture that we are trying to develop. We want everyone to recognize that we really believe that Jesus is the most important, most interesting and most powerful person in the entire history of the universe. So that's that's kind of the number one aspect of it. The second though, is that it goes back to that statement I just made about character being prioritized over skill, not at the expense of skill, but that a healthy church has healthy leaders, that they are people who meet those high qualifications of character that scripture shows, that the Bible itself is the norming norm, that it's our standard, that we evaluate all of our words, our thoughts, our deeds according to it. And it's what we 
teach, it's what we're encouraged with, and it's what we're corrected by. Because if we don't have the Bible, all we have are opinions. And that's a pretty terrifying thought because my opinions change pretty regularly. Um, (laughs) Along with that, when you get into the culture of the church, it's a place where people are known that we're involved with one another's lives and in one another's lives and and that because of that we we take the time that's needed to make um make our churches a safe place in the the true and biblical sense for people to come with all of their junk and all of the mess that's in their lives that that we're a place where people can suffer together and that we enter into that suffering with them that we rejoice when people are honored and all of those kinds and all that goes along with that likewise good and healthy church takes sin very seriously and so we hold one another leaders and congregation members alike equally accountable for our actions and so when we sin against one another we do practice church discipline consistently uh we don't do it with a creepy gleeful culty kind of shunning culture that um, we sometimes unfortunately read a little bit too much about on the internet and get horrified by when we see it in practice but we take sin seriously because because god takes sin seriously and he wants us to do that if we are called to be holy to be set apart and distinct from the rest of the world we need to act like that the sixth aspect of it is that that non-christians are loved and so that's not just a, a generic sense of making uh, people feel welcome in the church although certainly we want that we want our churches to be a place where people have the freedom to ask any kind of question that they want about the faith but we also make our churches safe and welcome for non-christians by protecting them from participating in ways that they're not meant to so that really comes down to depending on on where people land they i don't think listeners on this of this podcast are going to get uh, their feathers ruffled by this but a non-christian should never ever serve in any aspect of the church they should not be taking part in the service aspect of a ministry so you should not have a non-christian volunteering in your kids ministry or playing music even if they're really really great at it or anything like that um and the reason that i say that and i feel very strongly about that is is because service in the church is an act of worship so people should be serving in kids ministry for example a place that i've historically served in for a really really long time we serve in kids ministry because we love jesus and we want kids to love jesus too people who sing and play music um, during the the corporate worship time they do that because they want to play music for jesus and not just perform and so to ask someone who doesn't worship jesus to do things that are all about worship is wrong and is sinning against them so we don't want to do that the last piece though is one that again it could be controversial um, but it shouldn't be which is that compassion is a way of life so the church is supposed to be a place of justice and mercy 
And so we care about the orphan, the widow, the sojourner in biblical language. We care about people who are other than us, who are in need, um, whether they're in our community or they're out farther in the world. And this is something that we've seen in in the church's historic witness that Christians have always been at the forefront of things like orphan care and adoption of providing health care, actually, even to anyone and everyone in need, um, to the abolition of slavery, to education movements, to protecting, the, uh, upholding and protecting the rights of women of rejecting abortion and infanticide, opting instead to provide homes for unwanted children, even going so far as there being early declarations that wherever a church was built, a school and a hospital would be there too. That's how consistent the early church was with this ethos. And it's something that we need to maintain in our churches. And in some cases, and this statement might be a little bit controversial, but in some cases we may need to repent of our lack of care in these areas too. Yeah. The book is called, I'm a Christian. Now what? I'm grateful for the contribution to helping us really not just shepherd new Christians, but just to think about them and to put more effort into how we resource them. It's available now from Lexham Press, wherever good books are sold. Aaron Armstrong is the author. Brother, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for uh, having me on. And you know, I got to say, thank you for giving me the initial push that led to this book <laughs> existing. I don't know if it would have existed without you. Well, I appreciate that. I appreciate your, your depth of thought as well. I think anyone who listened to this episode should be inclined to pick up the book, if only because of your testimony, but also you've put a lot of thought. It's not just a matter of like, okay, they got to know about Bible study. They got to know about prayer. They got to know about here's the, you know, meat and potatoes. You actually get, you got some gravy in there. You got some good side dishes and the kind of stuff that makes the meal worth having. So I really, uh, I'm grateful for that. And dear listener, if you enjoy the podcast, please give us a good review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And until next time, may Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast hosted by Jared Wilson found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church.